Hello there, it's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman Pod. Today we're talking with Stephen Taylor, who's written a book on spiritual awakening when trauma leads to transformation. He has made a study of people who, whether it's through warfare, imprisonment, grief, addiction, or other things, have, instead of collapsing in the face of trauma and challenge, have had a catalytic moment into profound awakening, who have shifted their life in a permanent way. Some people may call that grace or enlightenment, but he says it happens more often than we think, and I find his work profoundly hopeful. If you are someone who's had a spiritual experience that you struggle to explain, or you've known someone who's bottomed out and suddenly become radiant from within, or you yourself are struggling and see no light at the end of the tunnel, let's uh, talk with Steve and see what he has to share. I'd also love to hear your stories. If you have been in the middle of something that was dark and scary, and suddenly you felt irradiated, filled with light, and like nothing could disturb your peace. I'd love to hear about that. You can message me at the.rose.woman on Instagram. What does it look like to tap into the incredible reserves of power that are inside of us? Let's hear about it. Welcome, Steve. In addition to writing this most recent book, you've got all of these other books. You're a professor, you're a householder, speaking and teaching. And I was wondering, before we got into the meat of this book, if you could talk a little bit about your personal journey. How did you become interested in spirituality and healing? It was natural to me from the age, certainly from the age of 16, 17. At that age, I began to have spiritual experiences, although I didn't understand them at the time. But I would have, uh, you know, experiences of... Um, feeling very connected to my surroundings, feeling a sense of oneness with nature, feeling a, a sense of profound inner well-being, And uh, it just seemed to be inside me. I, d- I don't know where it came from. It didn't come from my environment because my environment was very non-spiritual, non-religious. So I had no influences in that direction. It just took me a while to understand it. It took me maybe five or six years until I was in my early 20s. That's when I began to realized I wasn't actually crazy. Uh, you know, I was kind of, you know, I wasn't alone in my craziness, maybe I, I could say. That's interesting that you say that because I read this amazing book uh, that studied spiritual experiences. And most people have them, as you said, in nature. They have moments of, of glorious connectivity, but they don't tell anyone because they don't want them to think they're crazy. So uh, it's right in line with broader research on that. So the spiritual experience as a perception of being very connected and present and sort of this lightness or spaciousness is what I often hear. What's the difference between that and an awakening? Well, they're very similar, but um, it's the same basic characteristics, but spiritual experiences are usually by definition temporary. Mm. They sometimes last for a few seconds, maybe a few minutes, maybe a few hours, maybe even a few days if you're lucky but they fade away again and there's a return to normal consciousness. But spiritual awakening is a, it's a long-term ongoing thing. It's a, it can be a gradual long-term process or it can happen in a sudden moment of transformation. It's, it shifts people into a permanent state of wakefulness. And what are some of the qualities of that state? 
Well, I mentioned connection already. That's one of the primary things. You know, you, you feel a sense of connection to nature. You feel a sense of connection to other people. You feel a sense of connection to something deeper inside yourself. You feel a sense of connection to the whole universe. You know, you, you're no longer a separate entity living inside your mental space. You're part of the world, part of other people. So that's one of the main characteristics. And people tend to become um, more altruistic, more compassionate, less materialistic. They become more interested in contributing to the world rather than accumulating things, you know, rather than accumulating money or power or success. And, you know, everything becomes much more, much more real. The, the world around us becomes more vivid, more beautiful, more interesting. And there's a sense of gratitude as well, a sense of appreciation for the simple things in life, you know, for the, for the simple fact of being alive itself, for people for eating, drinking, walking, seeing, all, all of these things. I know people who try to cultivate those experiences through spiritual practice. Let me, let me see if I can clarify. Like, as you move from the experience to the awakening, if someone has an experience and then they're supported by practices or a community of others who share these sort of values, can you engineer the awakening? Definitely, yeah. It doesn't always work, but, it, but if you follow spiritual practices or a spiritual path, then it will lead you to awakening, you know, as a gradual process. That's a great thing about spiritual paths, you know, that they've been laid down for thousands of years in some cases, you know, in like yoga, Buddhism, Taoism, the Kabbalah, the Sufi path and so on. So that tried and tested paths of spiritual awakening. So, you, you know, if you, if you want, you can, you can ally yourself to one particular path and it will lead you to awakening but i think a lot, a lot of people you know they don't feel so comfortable you know narrowing themselves to one particular path so people a lot of people develop a more kind of eclectic path of awakening maybe including meditation altruism contact with nature all of, I mean, all of these things all of those practices will lead you to awakening on a gradual long-term basis yeah, so if you're living sort of a normal life of a householder or whatever, and you're interested in having this lightness and this thing, it can be cultivated. I do think you're right about this dogmatic single path, although there is value in devoting yourself to a single methodology, but it, it has had so many abuses and ossifications in the power structures around those things that I think people are wary, but there's still a longing for that essential connection. Yeah. If you had a basically you know, what I would call the normal traumas of life. You've had heartbreak, you've had loss, you've had shocks of some sort. Often people are pulled into a spiritual path in response to those things. What draws people into a spiritual path? You had this gift as a child, but what draws most people in? For many people, it can be a reaction to trauma. Um, when people go through trauma, for example, bereavement is a good example. You know, the, the surface of life doesn't satisfy them anymore. There's a hunger for, for meaning, you know, the, the kind of, you know, the, the simple materialistic pursuits of getting on in your career, becoming wealthier, more successful and so on, just getting by with fun and entertainment. That's, that's fine, but, it, but it, you know, once you've been through a trauma, that doesn't seem enough, you know, it seems shallow. So there's a, there's a hunger for something deeper. So people begin to explore spirituality that they long for something more i think basically it's a question of turning inwards you know 
If you live externally, that can be satisfying for a while, but at some point you realize it's not enough and you start to turn inwards. You start to explore the inner world and you realize that the, the source, the real source of happiness is not out there. It's within your own being. So that, that can be one of the main reasons. But I also think in a lot of people, it's as it was with me, it's simply instinctive. I think there's an impulse to grow in people. You know, life is characterized by growth physically and mentally and spiritually. So I think a lot of people just have this instinct. They, they want to grow. They want to expand. That's just part of evolution. You know, the whole of evolution is based on expansion. You know, and I think people are just following the impulse. Yeah, there, there feels like an impulse, but I, I have a sense sometimes that it's a return to my birthright. You know, that there was hmm. like socializing that was done that kind of isolated me or closed me off. And that I, I, bliss is my birthright. Being connected to Steve is my birthright. <laughs> you know, sometimes that feels like the most natural. This is the most natural thing I do every day. You know what's not natural? Sitting in front of a little metal box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> for, that's true. For half the day. <laughs> yeah, I think that's also true. You know, I think we are conditioned to some extent out of spirituality. I think young children especially have a, a natural spirituality about them. Yeah. They can be they can be narcissistic and egocentric, but they also have a natural presence a natural joy, a natural connection, yeah, and so on. So when you when you started this particular book, you're looking at a lot of people who've had very traumatic experiences, what would be, you know, deaths, NDEs, those kinds of things, cancer diagnoses, all that stuff that for many people really shuts them down, like contracts them and freezes them into an isolated spot. But that's not the story you're telling. Can you talk a little bit about how you came to ask this question of why some people thrive and how they thrive after a trauma while others contract. It began with my research into spiritual experiences. For a long time, I was interested in uh, collecting reports of spiritual experiences and finding out why spiritual experiences occurred. You know, why would people suddenly experience this sense of meaning and this sense of expansion and connection? I found that one of the major triggers of spiritual experiences was turmoil, you know, psychological turmoil, such as depression, despair, bereavement, and so on. People would suddenly shift from a state of despair into a spiritual experience, you know, almost like sort of suddenly switching over into a polar opposite state. But I also found that some people who reported spiritual experiences after turmoil, they told me that they didn't return to their normal state of consciousness. They remained in this heightened state. And I began to do research on that in particular. I found that it was quite common for, for people who had, for example, been diagnosed with cancer, who had recovered from addiction. Uh, even, you know, there were, I found lots of cases in prisoners, soldiers, um, you know, many different types of trauma. It wasn't uncommon for people to, you know, switch or shift into an ongoing state of heightened awareness. Um, so there seemed to be a very strong connection between, between turmoil and spiritual awakening. And that was what led to to the book. I I basically collected many cases of transformation in the midst of intense psychological turmoil. And I chose some of the most sort of dramatic and, and interesting cases and presented them, you know, in the book, along with a kind of analysis. And I also focused on what we can learn from these experiences, how we can apply them to our own spiritual development. It's a little bit of a a negative proof or whatever that's called in logic. Like you're focusing on the people who've had the long-term impact. 
what would you guess is the ratio of people who are having post-traumatic stress or post-traumatic freeze versus post-traumatic growth? And then sort of what portion of that are having the awakening experience? Yeah, that's a good question. A really interesting question because there's actually a lot of research on post-traumatic growth which is a kind of a milder form of the kind of transformation I'm talking about. Mm. Post-traumatic growth is actually fairly common. Research suggests that between a third and a half of people who go through trauma experience some post-traumatic growth in the long term. You know, they, they become more appreciative, their relationships become stronger and deeper. Um, you know, they feel a new sense of inner strength and confidence. So, so you know, it's by no means uncommon. Mm. But the kind of transformation I'm discussing is more radical, more dramatic. Mm-hmm. It's so dramatic that people often talk about feeling that they are a different person living in the same body. They, you know, they feel like they are completely distinct from the people they used to be. And that's obviously not as common as post-traumatic growth. I don't, I don't have a specific figure, but I would guess it's something like just 1% of cases. Yeah, but if it can if it's possible, if it can happen to one person, it can happen to more. Yeah. You know, the question is by I love that you're doing the observation of who and why and how because the, it's the common principles that create this deeper understanding of humans. Uh, the post-traumatic growth experience makes total sense to me. Like you learn more skills, you get confident in your resilience. It's almost like a survivor bias, you know? So that makes total sense. Do you want to tell a story or two from the book? Yeah, well, why don't I tell a you know a story or two to illustrate the uh, the phenomenon? I think one of the one of the most dramatic stories in the book, traumatic and dramatic. I never realised that trauma and drama are so closely linked. They? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they are. They are <laughs> drama yes. and drama. But anyway, um, yeah, the, one of the most dramatic and traumatic stories was um, a woman called Eve, who was uh, an alcoholic for twenty nine years. Uh, you know, very very heavy drinker. Uh, from a very young age and through the process of her addiction like a lot of addicts she slowly lost everything you know she lost her friends she lost contact with her family she lost her job she couldn't function anymore um she lost her possessions she ended up homeless living off the streets shoplifting just to try to stay alive and she was basically just feeding her addiction and by that point she wasn't actually gaining anything from alcohol. You know, she was just drinking to control her withdrawal symptoms. She would start shaking and get hallucinations and feel this terrible paranoia and panic if she stopped drinking for, for any time. So she, she actually tried to stop drinking. She went to AA meetings and so on and had counseling, but nothing worked. So she decided that she, you know, her situation was hopeless. She was living off the street. She felt emotionally and physically broken. So she decided to kill herself. And she actually attempted suicide. She threw herself in front of a coach that was traveling at 40 miles an hour. But luckily, the driver swerved, so she survived. But, but something happened to her in the process of attempting suicide. Something changed radically inside her. And um, well, the, the police were called. She, she expected to be arrested by the police because she caused this accident. But the policeman was actually very kind and, and said to her, you know, what, what, what's happened to you? You know, can we do something to help you? Can I take you somewhere? There's somebody who can take you in. So the policeman took her to her parents' house and she hadn't seen her parents for a long time. But her mother assumed that as she was an alcoholic, she'd have to give her a drink. So she gave Eve a glass of wine. But Eve couldn't drink the wine. She picks up the glass and just put it down again, picks up the glass, put it down again. She had no idea why, but she couldn't physically drink it. And then a doctor arrived and gave her some 
uh, sedatives to control the withdrawal symptoms. And when she came to after the sedatives, she felt completely different somehow. She looked in the mirror and didn't recognize herself. She couldn't associate herself with a person in the mirror. And she realized that she didn't have any urge to drink, that after 29, 29 years of, been, of being completely obsessed with drinking, the urge to drink had just strangely, mysteriously left her. And she felt this new sense of connection. She felt like the world had become more real, nature had become more beautiful. She felt a sense of empathy with other people that she'd never had before. And she felt this kind of inner well-being which she'd never experienced before. So she knew that she changed radically, but didn't really understand how. And then she, she went to some AA meetings and somebody said, ah, you sound like you've, you've had a spiritual awakening. Because they, they obviously know a lot about spiritual awakening in, in AA. And she thought, wow, what's that? Maybe I have. And then she began, then she began to understand what happened. But she felt, she said that she felt a bit, little bit, you know, I mean, at, at the AA, AA meeting, she met a lot of people who struggled to, to stay sober on a day-to-day -day basis. But she was just, you know, she didn't, she didn't have any struggle. The urge to drink had just left her mysteriously. So she felt that was very strange. But now it's been 10 years since her transformation and she's remained in this ongoing state of well-being and connection and also, you know, freedom from, from the crave, craving. So, you know, it's a very, so a kind of an amazing story of moving from a state of complete desolation into, into a state of continual well-being. And so many responses to that. Like the first one is, of course, the bottoming out, you know, that maybe that was it. And finally the shock, the shock or something moved through the body. But the other, then the second thought I had was perhaps the policeman was giving her darshan, you know, maybe he had some... Um, enlightenment and empathy and care, and he touched her in some way or was present with her in a way that something happened. Or perhaps it was just simply grace. Like, I don't want to understand it solely as a biomechanical thing, for sure. No. But um, how do you understand it? How do you make sense of that? Well, there are two things, really. One thing about it is the sudden disappearance of her addiction. And that's actually quite common. I met a lot of addicts, drug addicts, alcoholics, who had the same experience. You know, they, they bottom out they'd lose everything and undergo transformation. And a part of that transformation was the, the sudden disappearance of craving. Hmm. So I, I, I called it addiction release because it's such a strange phenomenon and it's quite a common phenomenon that there needs to be a term for it. But I think in order, in order to understand addiction release, you need to understand the nature of the transformation that people go through. And it's essentially the death of the ego. People experience an ego death or ego dissolution. So when they go through a long period of intense loss and turmoil and trauma, the ego is slowly broken down. You can think of it in terms of psychological attachments, like all of the, all of the psychological attachments which sustain the ego. And by that, I mean things like uh, hopes and ambitions, uh, roles, status, success, achievements, and so on. All of these things are taken away so the ego just collapses in the end, like a house when you take all the bricks away, it just collapses. But in the process of that collapsing, a new self emerges inside people, almost as if there's a, a latent higher self, which is waiting to be born, a latent spiritually awakened self, which is waiting to be born inside them. And it's a completely different self. It's, it's a completely different identity. So when the ego dies, the addiction 
which the ego carried also dies, you know, because the, the self which carried the addiction is no longer there. So the addiction is no longer there. And the new self which emerges, you know, it doesn't have any addictions, you know, it's, it's completely clean and clear and, and fresh. You know, why should the addiction continue? The addiction just disappears in the in the death of the ego. Do you have the sense that there's a new thing that comes alive in you or that you're just uncovering what was already there, like this innocent core? Mm, that's interesting because I haven't really worked like that one out because in some ways it does seem as if people do take on a completely new identity. But but at the same time, I can see the, you know, I mean, I, I have that, I've had that experience myself that when I've undergone, when I've had spiritual experiences or undergone spiritual awakening, it feels like I'm connecting to something essential, which was always there, you know, something which is just covered over, like, um, like clouds covering the sun, something which is covered over by concepts and thoughts and social conditioning. So I'm not really sure about that because a lot of people do, you know, despite what I've said, a lot of people do describe it in terms of at least feeling as if they are somebody completely different. You know, it's almost as if they are taken over by a new identity. But at the same time, I think there is in many people a kind of authentic spiritual self, which is occluded or covered up by the things I mentioned. So here you, so here's a woman who is at the very bottom and has this spontaneous occurrence where she stops desiring to drink, the ego's dissolving around her, and now she's walking in the world and healing. And as you're, what are some of the other hallmarks of people who've had an awakening like that out of trauma? Well, people often feel a, a tremendous sense of gratitude. It's as if they've, um, they've woken up from a dream. I think the, the dream is, is taking things for granted. I think human beings are kind of, you know, we are primed to get used to things and to take things for granted, to forget the value of things. But when people undergo this transformation, they never forget the value of things. They are keenly, clearly aware of the preciousness of everything. So on the, at the most basic level, they are aware of the, the preciousness of life itself. And even if, you know, what, in fact, another hallmark is that, that they often have a sense that there is some kind of afterlife. They often have a sense that this life is not all, but nevertheless, they, they feel that this life in itself is incredibly precious because it's temporary, it's fragile, it's limited. They, they also feel a sense of purpose and they want to spend as much time and energy as they can helping others and you know, furthering their own development, expressing their creativity. So a veil falls away and suddenly they're living in this precious, beautiful world, you know, this, this world full of wonders and miracles. That's, that's one of the main characteristics. Hmm. You sound skeptical. No, I'm I'm actually just feeling the wonder of everything right this moment. I'm just using that as a, a prompt to breathe a little more deeply and look around me. And if you're listening and you want to do the same thing, it's an amazing thing that anything exists at all. And just, I mean, electric light and natural light and the way the wind is moving the curtains. I mean, just look around you and have a moment of just taking it in. What a beautiful life. Yeah, that's it. Mm. Taking it in is really important because when people go through this transformation, they do take it in. They spend time taking it in. They pay attention to the phenomena around them. 
rather than being immersed in thoughts or plans or goals or dreams or memories? Yeah, I mean, in every major spiritual tradition, the embodiment was an important part that you came into your body, whether you're, you know, Buddha or Christ or you're Mary Magdalene or whatever enlightened being you want to tap into, a Hindu goddess, they're all embodied. So this idea that actually this is holy, this physical plane and that deeply experiencing it is, is, is like the, that's the path of the, of the tantrika, you know, taste everything. The only, way, the only way God knows you, God knows what's possible is by you tasting and touching everything as deeply as you can. I like that religion, actually. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. And interestingly, that was another characteristic or that is another characteristic of the shifters, as I call them. Um, you know, the, the, an appreciation for the body, you know, and they, they take more care of the body. They're focused more on diet and health and exercise because they know that the body is precious and it's, you know, it's, it's sacred. As you say, there's no division between body and spirit. Uh, the body is not spirit. The body is spirit. So do you believe that um, after studying people who've had, who, or the shifters, after studying the shifters, um, are that there are ways that we can pull out what they've experienced and help people who are experiencing the same outer circumstances as trauma definitely yeah what one aspect of is of it is that um we can learn how to respond to trauma and turmoil when they arise in our lives as they will from time to time that's just part of life part of our experiences that trauma and turmoil will arise at some point it's very clear that turmoil and trauma have transformational potential so there are certain ways that we can approach them or respond to them in order to gain access to that potential. And in the book, I talk about the importance of uh, acknowledgement and acceptance, particularly acceptance, which seems to be the, the kind of the, al the alchemical, you know, the alchemical quality which allows transformation to manifest itself. So a lot of people could actually identify a moment of acceptance when they stop resisting their predicament when they open themselves to their predicament, surrendered, if you like. And that was often the moment when transformation occurred. So it's really important to embrace the reality of your predicament, no matter how painful it may seem. Obviously, this takes some degree of courage as well. But um, it's really important to embrace the reality and to contemplate the reality and completely open yourself to it, even, you know, with an attitude of oneness to it. And that or help to help to allow the transformation to take place. Do you feel in psychological practice that people are able to be coached into that or held safely in a way that they can do it? Both. Yeah, I think one of the great things about therapy or counseling is that it can encourage people to acknowledge and accept their predicaments. It creates a safe space, a supportive space where people can enter that mode of acknowledgement and acceptance. So yeah, I think they can be really beneficial, you know, really helpful, because it, it does take courage. And human beings, we have what I call the avoidance impulse, which is entirely natural, you know, whenever we face pain, we try to avoid it, we try to escape it to get away from it. But it's actually more beneficial for us to move towards pain and to accept it. Mm. But yeah, it's helpful if you have a, a therapist or a counselor who can help you to do that. Some things seem very overwhelming. And I was thinking about, um, you mentioned earlier the AAPs, 
And the model of psychology, for the most part, has been a one-on-one -on -one model, except you have this group therapy thing. And what seems to be emerging now is a collective healing process, a collective, we sit in, we witness each other on a peer basis and, um, and, and heal individually. And how important that support system is in being able to look at really difficult situations and not collapse or feel alone. I think it's very important. Yeah, I think the group environment creates a, you know, a more powerful, supportive space. You know, I think, you know, the more people there are, the more, the more closely connected they are, the stronger the dynamic is, the stronger the supportive environment is. And that, you know, that will help people to enter a mode of um, acknowledgement and acceptance, and also a mode of self-exploration as well, which is also important. It's also important to, to take the step of entering into your own being and facing and exploring your feelings. That's a really important part of the, the transformational process. Do you believe that the, what happens in the individual is a mirror or um, a clue to what can happen at the societal level. Like right now, for example, many of us are very in a deep grief process around the climate and the inability to act. And one of the things that seems to be blocking that is acknowledgement of the depth of the problem and acceptance that things are changing. Can the same principles of individual awakening apply to cultural level change? Definitely, I think it is happening. I think that's a very good example. Because um, climate crisis, the climate emergency is creating a lot of trauma. You know, we, we are faced with the potential extinction of our species and certainly the extinction of millions of other species, which is already happening. So there's a, there's a lot of trauma and, you know, we're facing potential collective death, which is obviously incredibly traumatic. But there's a, there's a very close parallel with the transformation that individuals undergo when they face a diagnosis of cancer, or when they face any intense trauma. It's a very similar process. I think on a collective level, we are undergoing a degree of awakening as a result of that. You know, I think the trauma and the encounter with mortality is encouraging a collective awakening. I think that's why so many people are moving towards spirituality. I think that's why research shows that, that spiritual experiences are more common than they were 20 or 30 years ago. And I think, I think that's why I find so many examples of people who undergo transformation through turmoil. Maybe we see the, the ego death of Western civilization. Like it, it, it's how, how can you have an ego death, which allows you to surrender to what is um, most difficult while retaining what is beautiful, you know, and, and, to, and have both end in a way in, your, in, the, in one's life or in the culture. Yeah, I, th I think in some ways after ego death, everything becomes more beautiful. Your awareness of reality becomes much more intense and therefore the world becomes much more, much more beautiful. You know, one of the big things that I'm, that I'm feeling as you're speaking, I love the story of this woman. It's never too late. No matter where you are in your life, there's always the possibility of something yeah. happening that snaps you out of it. Transformation is available. Never give up. You know, that's sort of a, a meta feeling tone yeah i agree that's one of the things i've taken away from my research as well it's been very inspiring you know i, I did some research into soviet gulags mm -hmm. and i found that there were a lot, a lot of cases of transformation 
in people who were living in appalling conditions in uh, Stalin's gulags in the 1950s, people who were st literally starving to death, who were living in sub-zero temperatures, who were suffering from diseases. A lot of people reported that they, they found this kind of soul force inside them when they were so ill and so hungry and so close to death. They found this kind of golden core of power inside them which would keep them alive and keep them healthy and enable them to recover and it's, it's really quite remarkable you know it's it, it's, it's so remarkable that people would be they would be in minus 30 degrees but they wouldn't feel the cold they would be starving to death but they wouldn't feel hungry they would they'd be able to survive on the most minuscule amounts of food and it just makes you aware that the, there are incredible reserves of resilience inside human beings. We have a lot of powers that we're not normally aware of and which are harnessed in situations of extreme deprivation. It reminds me of, uh, you heard of the concept of the cities in Indian so yoga? Yeah, yoga. Patanjali's Pada 3, I think. That's right. It's the same thing. I, I mean, I think, you know, when people are in situations of deprivation, they can gain access to the cities, you know, these incredible powers soul powers deep inside us which we don't normally have access to but you know you can spontaneously get access to them in states of deprivation so i think it's inspiring that there are these incredible reserves of resilience and power inside human beings i, I was reading about one of the rites of coming of age in certain high mountain tribes in tibet is for a person to dip an ice cold blanket in a freezing lake and wrap it around themselves and then they have to dry the blanket from generating intentional heat from the inside of themselves. Wow. And things like that where, you know, you, you've learned how to cultivate and control the body in, in these ways. But of course, it reminds me of, you know, the, the classic Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, where he was able to document in such an eloquent way what you're talking about in the gulags, you know, that that you're in the middle of this situation and the only thing that you can really control is your inner process and his was more conscious i mean you're talking about it in a way where people are saying this is spontaneously happening and you know everything's been distilled down to light and breath and there's really nothing else except existence and i'm fine which is a very you know shocking idea for those of us addicted to creature comforts yeah it's a very strange idea that you can strip everything away and you know, literally, you have nothing left physically or mentally. But then, then you find this amazing spiritual power inside yourself. You find this amazing resilience and this amazing state of enlightenment within you. So I mean, I think that's why a lot of um, spiritual traditions have a tr tradition of asceticism, where people inflict pain on them, pain and suffering on themselves and. I think basically they're trying to get access. They're trying to follow the same process in a in a conscious way. I mean, I'm not sure if it actually works when you do it consciously, but but uh, it's the same principle. I think. I I feel I have argument with that. I feel that's actually egoic. So there's a quality sometimes I feel in asceticism of an of an egoic pursuit. Like I I'm so spiritual that I can take so much pain or I can live so penitently, <laughs> um, and that it, there's a weird denial. It's not the denial of sensory experience. It's the, the denigration of the body that bothers me in that. It's like, I, I'm going to deny this body exists and I'm going to punish it and I'm, I'm going to pretend it has no needs. And like, you've been given this one beautiful life. Why, why 
didn't, why think that that's not also holy? But you know what? There's a billion ways, seven and a half billion ways to live on earth. So who am I <laughs> to judge? <laughs> I think it gets hijacked. I, I think in certain traditions like Christianity, there's a kind of a duality between the flesh and the spirit. And I think that can be taken too far into sort of denying and punishing the body because the body is not spirit. And, but I think it's a false idea. And as, as we said earlier, I think the body is a, a manifestation of spirit. Not, it's not separate to spirit. There was, I, was, I was recalling a time for about seven years, I went into the prisons in, in um, Northern California doing a transformational justice program on guiding rage into power. And the first time that I went in, I was very shocked to find what you've been talking about on people who are in extreme conditions, that there have been people who are in there with life, life eligible inmates who were bodhisattva. Mm -hmm. Their lives had become so distilled down to routines and simple activities. And they were, they had so much time to reflect on what had happened and, and what they'd done or what they'd been part of in the system that had led to a certain occurrence. And they were radiant. No, yeah, that's interesting because I mean, in my book, I had to spend two chapters discussing prisoners who undergone awakening because I found so many examples. It was it was really strangely common phenomenon, as you said. You know, I spoke to people, you know, quite a few prisoners who'd undergone the experience of awakening, and you know, I think it, I think it's to do with um, letting go. You know, when you're in prison, you have to let go of everything because everything which gives you an identity is actually outside the prison walls on the other side of the prison walls you know your possessions your your role your relationships even so you have to let go of everything which is why prison one of the reasons why prison is a painful experience for many people because it is painful to let go but in the process of letting go you can uncover something deeper you know you can uncover your authentic spiritual self or a new spiritual self can be born inside you I think the other thing is that in prison, you have this environment where it's so turbulent outside you that you have to go inside to find any peace or happiness. So a lot of prisoners, they, they go inside themselves for the first time in their lives. They, they begin to explore their inner being for the first time. And they realize that there, there is this whole new inner world, which they, they were never aware of before. And that's, you know, that, that is a, a revelation for many people. Yeah, what, what you're saying echoes very true. The men, uh, I was primarily working in a men's facility, would say, you know, in my non-prison life, I never had a moment where I could rest to myself. That, you know, you had to be vigilant all the time for imminent harm. And that at least here, when I'm in my cell, I can, I can stand down for a minute, you know, which is interesting. Um, I never thought of that. Uh, I had never thought of that before going in. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a feeling the desire just to tell people to give a space in, in the interview to invite people to feel what it would be like to just notice what you're gripping in your own life. Like what identity, what relationship, what aspect of your constructed self are you really holding on to tightly? And just to like feel that gripping and imagine it softening a little bit, just like a little release or surrender and what it would feel like to not have expectations, to not think you were going to collapse if that thing disappeared. And even that little bit of softening, I mean, it feels different in the body, doesn't it? So this thing, you don't have to bottom out to soften. 
and surrender. There's, it's available in micro steps every day. I love your book. I hope everybody reads it because if you've got anyone in your life who's really at the, at, at, at the bottom, or even if you personally have fears of bottoming out someday, know that there are other options and, um, and be inspired by these stories and by the extraordinary research that Steve has done. Is there anything you'd like to add or make sure that people know before we close? Continuing on the theme uh, of what you were just saying, you know, I think, yeah, people should be aware that breaking down is also waking up, you know, breaking down is, is shifting up into a, in the process of breaking down, we often shift up to a new level of being. So in a sense, as you were suggesting, we don't need to be so afraid of turmoil and trauma because they can be a source of transformation. Thank you. I really, um, that was a beautiful way to wake up. I feel like I went to church. (laughs) (laughs) Great. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me today on The Rose Woman. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to me at the.rose.woman on Instagram. Please come and visit my company, rosewoman.com, for intimate care and body care products to serve a woman throughout her life cycles from birth to 100 with organic, beautiful, plant-based ingredients. And if you haven't yet, I have a new book that just came out this week called Reverence, Creating Ritual in Daily Life. And if you're enjoying these conversations, maybe you'll also enjoy that book. You can find Reverence at rosewoman.com or you can find it at Amazon. Thank you. Peace. Blessings to a world that works for everyone, to your happiness, clarity, and joy.